everyone. Welcome to the Weird World. That was your musical interlude by Dean. That was Blackpink. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was. There's a portion of it, the end of it. <laughs> okay. Dean's gotten into K-pop recently. I'm a huge K-pop fan. Mm-hmm. I wasn't being facetious. Mm-hmm. I was being serious. Mm-hmm. So... What you got for us today, Carrie? I have absolutely nothing for us today, Dean. What do you have for us today? Oh, that's right. I do. Oh, you know what I have for you today? What do you have? Brand new Christmas tree right over your left shoulder over there. Okay. Well, that's good. The lovely gnomo fir named Newman. You you named the tree? (laughs) No. The plant store that we bought it from literally named every single tree. Is that Paul Newman or is it just coincidence? No, it's Newman from... Oh, uh, from Seinfeld. From Seinfeld, N-E-U-M-A-N, yes. I think. Okay. I really wanted... Um, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. They had Jimmy Carter, but I didn't like Jimmy Carter's color. Rosalind? No, I didn't see a Rosalind. Oh. It was between Moby Dick, Homer Simpson, and Newman. And Newman got it. Okay. Well, good for Newman. Yeah. He's kind of, He's kind of clever and creative. For picking the uh, most hated character on I know. the show. That's good. So... Today, I'm going to make an admission. I'm going to start with an admission. I like horror movies. Well, who doesn't? I know. I love horror stories. Here's the difference, though. I am very much okay with them being just that, stories. I don't have to believe yeah. that those supernaturally terrifying events actually happened, right? Yeah. Carrie, Stephen King, the movie based on Stephen King novel, it's no less gripping because... A teenage girl didn't slaughter her bullies at the prom. Spoiler alert. But Yeah. In fact, I would be less inclined to watch such a movie yeah. if that really happened. But we've I touched on this in the past. It's become so common now that it's, you know, I don't know. Uh, filmmakers just feel this need to dredge the depths of supposed real life and find scary stories to tell. Or they just, you know, they just take absolute fiction, say it's real. And, you know, based on real events becomes a critical part of the marketing. Remember Fire in the Sky? That was the alleged alien abduction of Travis Walton in Arizona. Yeah. 1970s. We covered that in episode 154. That's an example. Of course, the Amityville Horror, episode 115. Yes, I did look these up. (laughs) Good job, Dean. Yeah. Poltergeist, I think, is supposedly based on real events. Really? A movie called Things Heard and Seen. That was based, I think, Poltergeist 2, but also Things Heard and Seen were based on basically like cash in fake hauntings by people who you know thought of the stories as fiction and then sold them as fact to sell more books. Yeah. And of course, I mean, what demonic possession movie isn't supposedly based on real events? Well, we we're going to write up our story about Penelope, remember that? That's true, but at least we're being honest about our fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Only to our podcast listeners. <laughs> to our That's we're going to make it sound like we really have a ghost named Penelope in our house. <laughs> That's what you get for being a podcast listener. <laughs> we talked about The Exorcist in episode 302. Pretty recently, The remember The Exorcism of Roland Doe? That inspired the story of The Exorcist, inspired yeah. the story of little 12-year-old Reagan McNeil, the priest killer. <laughs> yeah, which the Roland Doe is honestly a pretty boring story. I mean, I mean, how dare you say that? I don't think so. I think it's a fascinating actuality. story. If you, you know, the, the story as told, I think is actually pretty interesting. I mean, he was doing some pretty horrific things to these priests. There's, there's, there's these days and days on end of exorcisms. Right. If you just, exactly. If, if you, you didn't believe document that story style, as told, yes. I don't believe that story no, as told. No, we, we I kinda, think it was way more mundane than. We deconstructed that yes. pretty well. Yeah. It you know, it'd still be a fascinating psychological study of this family in crisis believing their teenage son. Was possessed by a demon. Yeah. It's an interesting story if you tell it honestly, too, I think. But there's also a movie called Deliver Us from Evil. I'm sorry. Yeah. Deliver Us from Evil. You ever heard of it? Sounds familiar. It was about a New York cop named Ralph Sarchi. And he basically, he's a real cop. And he said, for, essentially, for 30 years, he, has, he made the claim after the fact, or I think maybe during the, toward the end of his career, but for sure after the fact, that almost every other of his crime calls, he was confronting a demon. <laughs> Seriously, the, you know, the person abusing their spouse was possessed by a demon. Yeah. And he went on later to make a lot of money writing and speaking about these alleged exploits. And also he now, currently, he consults for others on how to beat demons. Wow. He, and, you know, 
his, his shtick is, I was a cop and I saw it on the streets of New York City kind of a thing. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's fairly embarrassing. Of course, there was Annabelle and all the other Warrens-based movies like Haunting in Connecticut and the others that are always said to be based on true events. But since right. they involve the Warrens, that's strike one, two, and three, we know with dead certainty that they're nonsense and they yeah. weren't based on any real events of any sort whatsoever. Just solely because and you don't really need anything other than the Warrens involvement to know that. There's a recent movie now. I think it's on Netflix right now. It's called Winchester. You heard of that one? No. It's about the unusual Mr. House in San Jose that yeah. we actually just recently saw. Mm-hmm. It stars Helen Mirren. This is the, it's one of those kind of I don't know for lack of a better term a bio fraud that just can just make stuff up. Yeah. About I mean from a whole cloth. It's it's about the, these angry spirits, the, the angry spirits of the people who were killed. By the Winchester rifle, which was the basis of the fortune of the Winchester family, yeah. are not harassing Sarah Winchester. She was the woman who built the, all the rooms. If you don't know it, she built tons of rooms. She has walls that just suddenly stop. She has stairways that don't go anywhere. She has incredibly small steps, which, of course, she was old and frail. And, yeah. But it was a really strange room that well, was going on for a long time. Was the story was essentially that her house always had to be under construction or else what would happen? Uh, Like she, She the the legend is that, yeah, she would, or something. It was something supernatural. She did have seances, but no one, not even the website, which is, its job is drive tourists to the Winchester yeah. house, claims anything about evil spirits and angry over being killed. It's just made up. But I mean, movie. is even that part true? I don't know. I don't know. The real motivation appears to have been, much of it was being built during economic hard times and she was employing people. She had a fortune. So she was just and a so really nice old lady doing, who doing, had a lot of money. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And you turn it into <laughs> these horrible. And yeah. the thing is like very, you know, I mean, I saw parts of it and it's like really ghost doing terrible things and yeah. just utter nonsense. Because why would any sort of demons or ghosts or spirits care whether her house was under construction or not? That <laughs> that part is just doesn't make any sense. And why whatsoever. would they be, uh, you know, treating her so badly when it's a goddamn husband made the gun that killed them? That's right. And do you really blame the gun? I kind of do, actually. But you also blame the person who shot it. Go, you know, go haunt their ancestors. Yes, but if that was even possible, how about now? How about now what? We have monumentally more oh, yeah. victims of That's true. gun violence yeah. who could, you know, frankly, yeah. Yeah. The help NRA. our situation out if they wanted to. All so. of the leaders of the NRA seem uh-huh. to be horrifically haunted every single uh-huh. day. And I just and hope that's true. And a few members of Congress mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll that's make true. a list for them Haven't if they want that. it. For the spirits, for the ghosts, yes. for the angry spirits. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll find it. I'll find a, a, a medium, a real one, and... um give them a list some of these um so some are made up some of these inspired from true stories are just like super thin like a really tenuous connection like there's a movie called borderland it's about these three friends who go to mexico for some like college hijinks and they fall into the hands of an evil death cult kind of a deal the movie says it cites someone named adolfo Costanzo, who's a Mexican-American who did go down to mexico and he did kill some people and he did develop a kind of a small cult following so eh, close enough. Let's yeah, uh, sure. somebody he probably killed some college students. Let's just assume he did. Blackwater movie about crocodile attacks in Australia. You know what? There are some of those. Boom. Inspired yeah. from a true story. The birds, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, was supposedly inspired by some birds that ate a toxic algae and started flying into windows in the central California and coast or the oh. northern California coast, somewhere like that. So supposedly. Huh. I mean, obviously, they took liberties from there, yeah. <laughs> but supposedly it's inspired by that. Most of the times, though, that you see a movie that says it's inspired by true events are literally based on true events. It's yeah. again, it's, it's marketing nonsense. See things saying inspired by. Yeah, I that's, have less of an issue. I do too, because then you know, oh, we heard this story and we're going to credit it, right? Yes, but when you say this is based on a true story, correct. Like, again, not to harp yeah. on the Warrens, but like all those Warren movies, yeah. they literally say this happened. These are real people. Yeah. Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are playing real people and saying this really happened to him. And that yeah. that I have a problem with yeah. because it's pretty scuzzy. And it's pretty sleazy. It's dishonest. It's fraudulent. And as I've said before, in actual life, the Warrens were awful, awful human beings, especially uh, Ed Warren. And yes. to, to make them sympathetic is a um, betrayal of our trust. I did hear a little tidbit on another podcast from somebody who is actually friends with one of the Perone sisters. Oh, really? Were those the Conjuring movies? Uh, it's one of those. 
I can't remember which one. There's the Perone family. They lived yeah. in a big farmhouse. Yeah. And I guess in the mo- movie, they depicted the dad, the Perone family dad, as having kind of forming a friendship with, er- what's his name? Warren. Ed Warren. Ed Warren. I was going to call him Earl Warren. Ed Warren. And in reality, her, the dad hated yeah. him. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. No, Ed Warren was an awful, yeah. awful human being. A bully. A, yeah. Just a, a, just a piece of shit. Yeah. But there's this like fake realness that gives it this kind of oh shit factor. Like, oh my God, that's even crazier if it's real. real. And so I think that's that's yeah. why it's done that way. Again, it's, it's very dishonest though. I'm, I, I've always had a problem with it. Except for a little movie called A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, 100% fact. Everything in that happened in real life. You might say, wait a second. Where are you going with this, There's no way that can be based on a true story. (laughs) I mean, people died in their sleep, killed by their nightmares. That's ridiculous. That can't be true. No one claims it's true. You're full of shit. It's impossible. It cannot be based on real events. Or can it? I'm going to say no. Well, prepare to be educated. Okay. We were going to start going back to the 1970s, late 1970s. Way a way back. You mean way, 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 way back. Way, 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 way back. I don't know that <laughs> even humans existed. People rode dinosaurs. The social worker for Lee Hua, I'm going to have some Asian names here. I'm going to pronounce them. Yeah. I apologize ahead of time. Lee Hua, uh, the social worker heard that he had died in his sleep from an unknown cause, and she was floored. She, she knew him as this young, healthy man. He was a recent refugee from Laos. He was a member of the Hmong people. They're a minority population within Laos and other parts of Southeast Asia nearby. He had found work in Southern California as a medic. He just, you know, he was this vibrant young man that she knew. And the medical examiner said, yeah, something to do with his heart, but we're not quite sure what. She thought, that I don't understand. That's that's insane. So it, it was baffling to her. Now, 47-year-old Lang Tao, he was sleeping at his Minneapolis area home in 1981. A couple of years later, his wife awoke and found him in distress. He's like flopping around. He's, he's, he's asleep, but he's clearly in some kind of distress. Mm-hmm. He was gasping. He was shaking. His wife was terrified, but there's nothing she can do about it. Within a few minutes after waking up to find him like that, he he rattled his last and he died in his sleep before the help could arrive that she had called. Mm-hmm. They too were Hmong refugees from Laos. Leng Tao was the fourth Hmong to die while asleep in just the last nine months when that occurred. He was the 13th Hmong to die in this way since 1978. People were beginning to notice of this, this trend. So let's take another step back. That's the late 70s, early 80s. The Vietnam War raged, as you know, from the 1960s to the 1970s. In 1973, US, the United States pulled all its, its forces out of Southeast Asia, out of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Communist forces there, kind of, they, they called it a decent interval. And a lot of people alleged that it was uh, negotiated, that Kissinger negotiated with North Vietnamese specifically to like, hey, after we leave, wait a little while, then take <laughs> over the country so it doesn't look so bad for us. Yeah. And that's what they did. They waited like, I don't know, a year plus. And then the communists rolled over all three of those countries, Laos, Cambodia, and South Vietnam. And Laos, the Pathet Lao regime took control toward the end of 1975. The Hmong were, as I mentioned, an ethnic minority within Laos and adjacent parts of Cambodia and Vietnam. They lived in the mountains. They were this fiercely independent people. And so central governments had long kind of generally left them alone. Even the French, when they ruled Indo, what was called French Indochina, mm-hmm. pretty much left them alone, left them to their own devices up there in the mountains. During the Vietnam War, North Vietnam had troops in Laos to support the path of Lao and support, and they also used Laos as, as staging areas too outside of Vietnam. The Hmong were hostile toward the North Vietnamese and their path at Lao allies because they felt like, okay, if those guys take over, they could be coming for us. Mm-hmm. So to protect their independence, they, were, they became very anti-communist and therefore they became allied with the U.S. forces there. Okay. The U.S. military used these antagonisms and the CIA, by the way, to recruit the Hmong as soldiers to fight the communist forces. And this became known as the secret war. These battles and these operations in Cambodia and Laos were not immediately known 
until later on during the war, well after they began. You probably don't remember that because you were a small little baby child. I was. Okay. I don't really know a whole lot about the Vietnam War. I recommend reading um, Francis Fitzgerald's book. Fire, oh Jesus Christ, is it Fire in the Sky? I apologize for not no. knowing the name. It's a really good book. Okay. It's um, comprehensive. At their peak, the Hmong fighting force grew to 30,000 folks. Wow. So they were That's very significant. Yeah, it is. The US command, by the way, shockingly had them do a lot of the dirty work. Yeah. So their casualties were something like 10 times the rate of American soldiers. Oh, wow. So they did a lot of the, they were fighting in the, in the mountains. And rural areas against, you know, well-armed, well-trained North Vietnamese soldiers and very, you know, passionate communist soldiers for the Path of Lao. So Path of Lao takes over late 1975. They almost immediately start to persecute the Mog, their enemies during the war. Mm-hmm. U.S. forces gone home. So the Mong resistance kind of collapsed pretty quickly. Thousands were displaced within Laos itself. Thousands more fled on foot, mostly to Thailand. As refugees, they couldn't go to Vietnam or the ocean. That was the enemy there, too. Right. So they fled east towards Thailand, or I'm sorry, west and southwest towards Thailand. Tens of thousands would eventually be allowed into the U.S. Mm-hmm. as this part of that great wave of traumatized, war-hardened uh, refugees. Yeah. By about 1980, there are about 35,000 Hmong refugees in the United States. At the same time, of course, they remember there are many more of that number of Vietnamese refugees. Right. And they're flooding into the U.S. So to not overburden local governments and local areas, and to also very much to avoid some potential thorny political issues, the U.S. government had a policy of dispersing these populations, especially the Mog. So they sent them in various different places throughout the country so they weren't just all kind of settled into one or two areas. They would later kind of, uh, it's called a secondary migration, and they would kind of concentrate a little bit. Yeah. But initially, they were sent all over the place. They were sent to like Missoula, Montana, and Providence, Rhode Island, Denver, Orange yeah. County, California, of course, became a main area. How about Northern California? Uh, San Jose became a, yeah. San Jose mainly for the Vietnamese, not the Hmong. Oh. The Hmong were in, I'm talking about where the Hmongs were populated. Right. And, well, um, I'm too, because we have Hmong up here. We do. There are, some, there are quite a few in Sacramento, too. Yeah. yeah you're yeah. right. And Minneapolis, St. Paul area, Minnesota, too. Really, Orange County, you know, Southern California and Minneapolis area became eventually became two of the main concentrations. Yeah. So still, even when they kind of reconcentrated to a certain extent, they were still these, you know, strangers in a strange land, and they had immense pressures on their culture and their traditional belief system. Yeah, I'll bet. Most Hmong practice an animistic religious belief system, even those that were nominally Christian still held a lot of yeah. these traditional beliefs and acted upon them. I mean, I'll be honest, because we lived in Southern California, mm-hmm. and I don't really remember, you know, exactly when these refugees were coming, but I remember Asian refugees oh being my God. talked about in you remember, very derogatory terms. You remember the phrase that was used? Yes. What was it? You're Boat say? people? Boat people. Yeah. Yeah. That, was, that mainly referred to the Vietnamese refugees. Again, there are far more Vietnamese Weren't refugees. Weren't they Cambodian too? There, there were some Cambodian, yeah. some, some Laotian, yeah. but a lot of Vietnamese. And they were, yeah, it yeah. became a major, major, major political football. They settled in Orange County and oddly enough became, Orange County was already a pretty Republican area, but yeah. there was the super white, you know, yeah. early MAGA kind of an, a Republicanism. Yeah. And it, it, they became Republican, though, because they felt that the Republicans had, had backed them in the war in, in, against the communists, and they were very fiercely anti-communist, and they felt, oh, Republicans are more anti-communist, so they became reliable Republican voters. That's less true now, but, yeah. but still, that was a little odd since most of those Republicans they backed personally hated them, so or at least were, were pretty racist. So there's this disconnect. Their belief system is, you know, it, they, they held it still, but it was, it was difficult. It was increasingly difficult to do in, in the United States. This is when, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, you began to have these Hmong people dying in their sleep, these young, healthy men dying in their sleep. Mm-hmm. Something was causing this kind of stress, but... Wait, and where, what part of the country did you say this was happening in? All over. So the two examples I gave you were Orange County and Minneapolis. That's because there are a lot of Hmong there, but it was happening all over the country. Mainly in those areas, though, of course, obviously, where there were major concentrations of Hmong. Okay. By May of 1981, at least 18 Laotian refugees had died in this way. 
by the end of that year, 26 men, young men, had died in their sleep in this way. Again, virtually all of them were Hmong. Not all of them, but the, the vast bulk. Yeah. Most were from, were from California. Some were in Minnesota. Again, that's what the two major populations were. By the later 1980s, over 100 more Hmong would join them in this nightmarish death, seemingly killed by their own nightmares. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, noticed this and began to investigate in the early 1980s, and it came to be called the, quote, Asian Death Syndrome. Hmm. Yeah, it was a thing. I, I don't remember, I'm assuming you don't remember, I do not remember it contemporaneously in the early 80s, this being, you know, I don't remember seeing it on the media. It did get yeah. a lot of play. Oh, really? I, yeah. It did, uh, well, some. It was, it was huh. known. It was within the general population. There were newspaper articles and things like that. Yeah. No. I about it. Probably wasn't reading the newspaper a whole Probably lot. not. Most of the victims were simply found dead in the morning. Yeah. When someone found them or the sick and infected other woke up, or I, I should say their wife. Or, or their parents. And it was all men, never all a men. woman. Mm-hmm. Huh. Many of them, like remember Leng Tao from uh, Minnesota, they were seen in dress while they slept, and but died before medical help could arrive. Sometimes, though, medical help would arrive, so paramedics would get there when they're still alive and they're still you know tossing and turning or what have you. And various, in several inst- instances like that, their hearts were found to be fibula- fibrillating. How do you fibrillating? Fibrillating? I guess so, because you use a defibrillator (laughs) when there's a problem. Fibrillating rapidly just before they die. So the hearts were out of control. Yeah. Like they're, some would say, like they're terrified while they slept. So does fibrillating mean like beating excessively fast? Yes. Ooh. Their hearts were going crazy fast. And in many Uh cases, they they thought their hearts were also beating arrhythmically, which of course, as we know, the heart attack, what is that heart attack that's a blockage? Very dangerous, can kill you. Yeah. The heart, what's called a heart attack, that is a um, that is arrhythmia, yeah. will almost certainly kill you unless that's what a defibrillator is for. It's basically stop your heart to restart it and put it back in sync. Oh, we better get a defibrillator then. Okay. <laughs> I'm worried about my heart. My heart fibrillates. <laughs> your heart fibrillates when I'm around. We both know that. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Okay, well, whatever, man. <laughs> the vast bulk of... Those who died in this way during the decade of, that this nighttime death occurred were Hmong, as I mentioned. All were men. All were in their 20s and 30s. The median age was 33. So again, wow, young, very young. Men. Yeah. They're found in all parts of the country. And this was in late 1970s, early 1980s. So as soon after this Asian exodus, so the refugees were new. On average, a victim had been in the U.S. for about 17 months before they were stricken. So wow. they were all pretty new to the country. Yeah. At its peak in the early 1980s, this death by nightmare was so common and it was so specific that its death rate among the Hmong was equal to, quote, to the top five natural causes of death for other American men in their age group. Like so all put together? All put together. Like, wow. you know, car accidents or whatever. Yeah. For the, the subgroup of Hmong... I, I believe just young men, but of young male Hmong, yeah. death by nightmare was one of the top five causes of death. Wow. Yeah. Why'd you I get mean, to death by nightmare? This, this, whatever we're talking about here, this thing, it has, we're going to talk in a minute about the names of it, as a matter of fact. Okay. But this Asian death syndrome, as it was called, this dying in their sleep. Soon after the CDC got involved, names actually did start popping up, and they started naming this affliction, this syndrome. There was the sudden unexplained death syndrome, SUDS. There, you're laughing, Carrie? <laughs> well, just God, because why do they got to come up with silly acronyms for everything? There was the Asian death syndrome, as I mentioned. There's also the sudden, sudden Asian death syndrome, SADS. Yeah. And there was the sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, also SADS. So, yeah. That was awkward. But maybe the one that kind of got settled on was SUNDS. S-U-N-D-S, Sudden Unexplained Nocturnal Death Syndrome. So these people are dying. They're dying in their sleep at night. We don't know what's going on. we got to give it a name, but we still don't understand it. But, you know, they were dying suddenly at night, so you have a name. Doctors were baffled. Some people even thought the cause could be some kind of a nerve gas or like exposure to Agent Orange or something like that because where they they had come from. Like a delayed... Some Something sort of like delay. that, yeah. But health experts said there's no known agent that can act in that way. I mean, deaths at night and, and just young men, it didn't make any sense right. to 
experts, I guess. By 1988, there had been 104 deaths that the CDC had tracked since the rash in 1981, 118 in total since late 1970s. So, um, and they all were from Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Again, a big chunk of them were, were Hmong refugees from Laos. 98% died between the hours of 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. That is, again, while they were asleep. It's very yeah. strange. Well, I guess they died while they dreamt, or actually while they nightmared. Is nightmare a word? In your research into this topic, Go on. did you come across any statistics of... Other, I no, because I've just said all of the ones I have, but go ahead. Other nationalities? Oh. I mean... It, uh, there are other Southeast people. Asian... But, oh, oh, I see. Also, yes, we'll get to that. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Many Hmong saw a spiritual side to this academic. The Hmong traditional belief system is based on an ancestor-centered worship, as we talked about. Doing right by your dead ancestors was critical, is everything. You had to remember them, you conduct the proper rituals, you take care of their grave sites, all those things were crucial. Mm -hmm. But they're displaced, and they're far from home. It was really tough to maintain these practices. They lacked access to like shamans and elders that could guide them, but obviously they lacked by definition, they lacked access to the grave sites. Right. And that was really, they were thousands of miles away now, and they couldn't get to them ever, let alone, you know, once a year or whatever. Yeah. Their graves couldn't be properly adorned. Their spirits were residing far, far away. All those things were really, really bad, according to their belief system. You know, the, the fabric of their traditions were fraying now that they're in the U.S., there were other contributing factors. People talk about the, the intense stress of the war, you know, their refugee flight, how thousands of their fellow Hmongs died. They left behind many, many thousands more, of course. Yeah. The travel, the sudden immigration into a new country. They also often, they were living in, in poverty or near poverty, so they had bad diet and many were not acclimating well to the U.S., this was this ma- think of a massive culture shock, and all those things, those issues, can cause health problems. Even apparently, according to some of the sources I read, specifically cardiac yeah. kind of issues. Although I'm, I'm, that part seems a little weird to me. Certainly, causing health issues that makes a lot of sense under yeah. this kind of stress they were under. And this is what health experts thought was happening: that they're they were uncertain, but they you know they thought it was something natural. Let's say, yeah, and that. And you can well. see, in the, in, but their, their uncertainty is interesting. <laughs> their uncertainty is illustrated by all those different names. Suds, sads, sons. Yeah. Know. What are you going to say? Well, natural as opposed to supernatural yeah. or, or, or just, I mean, You know, what I'll, what I'll get into in just a minute here, this is going to be the, the impetus of the rest of the show, is that natural as opposed to cultural. And I'll tell you what, that, what I mean by that in a second. Okay. So I mentioned a minute ago, it was called also a little bit racistly, the sudden Asian death, sad. Yeah. One of the reasons, though, was because this had been seen in other Asian countries. Oh. It actually has a name. In the Philippines, it's called, I'm going to mess it up, Bangangut. It's the Filipino word for nightmare. And it's known there as the nightmare death syndrome. So a similar phenomenon wow. has long been known in the Philippines. So the cause of the Hmong deaths in the U.S. specifically in these the 19, late 70s into the 80s has never been explained. To this day, we're not 100% sure what was going on there. But I think the most fascinating argument that's been put forward has been done so by Shelley Adler. She's a folklore scholar. And she has studied the traditional beliefs of Southeast Asians for years. She did her graduate work at UCLA. So you know she's very smart Mm -hmm. because all people who did graduate work at UCLA are very, very, very smart. I believe you would not disagree with that, I'm assuming. Would you? Uh, They're probably. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Of above average intelligence. Hurtful, but interesting. (laughs) So Adler's theory starts with something we touched on. And we just, just a minute ago, but also remember we discussed it in episode 250 about the ghost tape number 10 mm-hmm. by the U.S. psychological ops forces in the Vietnamese War, in the Vietnam War. Traditional beliefs in Southeast Asia center again on rituals and pay a proper respect to your ancestors, right? Yes. So we have the Southeast Asian refugees, among the, the Hmong among them. They're forced to leave. They're disconnected. They don't have their elders there. They're unable to maintain their rituals with their ancestors, etc. right? That belief system is core to her theory. The second part of her thesis has to do with something we've also discussed on this show, and that is sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. 
actually, I had forgotten this. We actually mentioned Adler's work by name way, way back in episode 75 about shadow people. Wow, that is an oldie. Yeah, it is. She talked about sleep paralysis there as the theory of the shadow people phenomenon of seeing these shadow people. Sleep paralysis, just to give a quick recap of what that is, is this really unusual event that happens to a lot of people. Typically, it happens to you once or twice in your life, but it's horrifying. It occurs when your brain's sleep and waking cycles get out of whack. When you sleep and you're dreaming, particularly during REM sleep, your mind is actually very active. When you wake up in a sweat, it's because you, you've probably been flopping around to some extent during REM sleep, and that's why. No. And but even if you're not flopping around, your your body and your mind is very active, and you're actually burning calories and sweating. I think you can. People should sleep their way to uh, thin, yeah. thinness. I'm going to start it. I'm going to do a diet book. Well, I wake up sweating every night many times, and I haven't lost an ounce. So, okay, <laughs> way to bring it down. I don't think that's a secret. Okay. Well, it doesn't. It's not going to stop me from writing a diet book. Okay, it hasn't stopped <laughs> the anyone nightmare else. Diet. The nightmare. I like it. I like it. There's a title. She has a good title. That's a great title. So, <laughs> the nightmare diet. It's not what you think. I swear <laughs> to God. Your body would also be very active during the night if your brain didn't shut it down. So the brain actually specifically shuts down mobility it shuts right. down body movement during sleep specifically and and most importantly during REM sleep because otherwise you could do bad things you could hurt yourself hurt others while you slept this is why sleepwalking by the way is yeah. so rare sleepwalking yeah. is a similar kind of phenomenon yeah sleep paralysis occurs when you're awake or very very nearly awake so you're at least semi-conscious if not flat out conscious Usually it's coming out of sleep, but it could also be going to sleep, but much more likely it's coming out of sleep. And that your brain, though, has forgotten to turn your body back on. Yeah. That's the essence of sleep paralysis. If you're conscious and you're effectively paralyzed, temporarily paralyzed, but you're awake and you, you know what's yeah. happening around you. For some reason, and there are some rational theories, but for some reason you often feel a presence in the room with you. You, of course, you can't move your head, so you, you you feel like the presence is at the foot of your bed or something like that. But you can't; you're paralyzed. So you yeah. can't move your head to to look at it or see it. You just feel it there. Is typically accompanied by this sense of dread that that presence means you harm. That was my experience. I've had sleep paralysis twice. One horrific feeling of dread and, and presence. And, and it describes my experience perfectly. And that, by the way, it describes my experience before I knew what the hell it was. Yeah, I didn't, I had not heard about sleep paralysis when I first got it. I was probably in my early 20s and I hadn't heard about it. And it 100% described it perfectly. So it's pretty damn scary. But as part of the human condition, it's, it's humans are having it, not just certain humans. Humans are having it. And it's been misunderstood in all cultures until pretty recently, until really, honestly, sleep research right. has become a thing. So it, it, as I mentioned, this the idea of sleep paralysis comes in many names. It's called, um, here's what I'm going to mess up words again. I apologize ahead of time. It's called Deguentin in Indonesia, and that means pressed on. In China, it has been called Beiguiya, which means held by a ghost. Oh, that's, that's a good, a good one. one. To the Hungarians, and to show you I'm partly Hungarian, I can't pronounce this either, is Bazorkani Naomis. It means witch's pressure. Mm. Ooh. It was called the old hag in Newfoundland. And it was said that when it happened to you, you were hag ridden, was the idea. You were beset by called agro. The Dutch term comes very close to our term, they called it Nacht, Nacht Marie, which means nightmare, although the mare part refers to a female supernatural creature that lay on your chest as you slept to suffocate you, and that, that was the cause of the pressure. Oh. Notice, by the way, one thing, how China, the Chinese and Indonesian cultures is kind of more of an affliction, it's something that happens to you, and they attached its cause to transgressions in their in their belief system. The European culture, they turned it into like an attack, didn't yeah. they? Like by a creature. And yeah, most often a female a witchy kind of creature. Yeah, a female demon, the mm -hmm. incubi, the succubi, yeah. these demon-like creatures that you know sat on you while you slept and did and yeah. cackled. Actually, other Southeast Asian cultures also 
had this kind of female demon kind of a thing. Well, which I was, I found a little bit surprising. So what the Dutch might have called a nightmare in Hmong culture was called the Sog Suum. I hope I right. <laughs> In the Philippines, it's called the Dab Sog. And in both cultures, this thing takes the form of this jealous female spirit that strikes in the night and brings a sense of dread and this presence and this chest pressure and terrorizes his victims. It's uncannily like the Incubi or some of these other... Um, European mythology was, which I found, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. Yeah. Here is what one Hmong refugee told Adler of his experience. Quote, I remember a few months after I first came here, I was asleep. I turned out the light and everything, but I kind of think, and then all of a sudden I felt that I cannot move. I just feel it, but I don't see anything, but I, then I tried to move my hand, but I cannot move my hand. I keep trying, but I cannot move myself. I know it is a sog sum. I am so scared. I can hardly breathe. I think, who will help? What if I die? End quote. Whoa. So clearly describing a sleep paralysis episode. Yeah. But, and, but putting it into his own cultural context. Mm -hmm. And again, to the Hmong, the cause was very clear. So as another refugee told Adler, quote, when the Hmong don't worship properly, do not perform the religious ritual properly, or forget to sacrifice or whatever, then the ancestor spirits or the village spirits do not want to guard them. That's why the evil spirit is able to come and get them, end quote. Oh. Hmm. There's nothing amazing, I, I wouldn't think, about this being cross-cultural. You know, It is kind of weird that it's this female spirit and things like that, but the idea that it's called cross-culture is, again, completely explicable because... It's the same phenomenon these different cultures are describing, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it again, only in modern times have we understood more of what its actual causes is. But it did, it scared people, didn't kill them typically. So what happened that was different to the Hmong in the U.S., or at least to many of them in the late 70s and early 80s, that killed them rather right. than just scared them? Yeah. So Atlas theory can also explain why that last part, why it was killing them and not just scaring them. At least, at least she, she attempts to. So again, we, we know the cause. It was the, the ancestor, you know, the belief systems were being disrupted. The right. cure was also came from their belief system. You had to do the proper rituals, etc. But again, for a lot of reasons, the, the Hmong people weren't able to do so in the US. Right. So you wound up with a lot of Hmong, especially younger men, you know, not doing what they're supposed to do for their ancestors and not able to do this. And even though they're kind of starting to assimilate into U.S. society, they're still very bothered by this and still see this as the, the root of, uh, and, and are still worried about this and still bother them and still causing them a lot of stress. Then in this stressed out environment that they're in, sleep paralysis hits and you're unable to get the traditional cures, you get sick, you have heart problems, maybe arrhythmia, things that can kill you and potentially kill you in your sleep. So Adler essentially, I think if I'm interpreting it right, she's arguing that, I don't know if she's arguing that the stress caused a sleep paralysis episode that killed them or a sleep paralysis killed them was kind of the last quote unquote nail in the coffin right. under this stressed out situation. I think the latter, yeah. but I'm not a billion percent sure. I mean, do any of these men who died, do their wives or family members say, this was a pattern that they had had I, what uh, seemed like these episodes before in their sleep know. and didn't die. And uh, yeah, good question. I don't know. I'm not sure. But either way, you know, the idea is, her argument is that the, all those beliefs, the belief system related stresses caused them to be much more susceptible to whatever it was that killed them when sons or whatever yeah. we call it occurred. I mean, we know beliefs and stresses and mm -hmm. you know the mind could de mm -hmm. definitely can affect your health and your body i mean the whole placebo effect is that, in the opposite direction yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about right now yeah I, fact, you're good i just i don't know good segue i don't know if i buy it well I'll, let me see if, if i can uh, sell it to you okay so basically adler's key argument is essentially that under the right circumstances culture can kill you right right so perhaps there was underlying heart conditions for these people but it was the beliefs that killed them effectively. Mm -hmm. So what happened to the Mog is essentially can be considered an instance of the nocebo 
effect, the opposite of the placebo oh, effect. Is that a real thing or is it, it coined is for thing. this? I've, yeah. yeah. Okay. I just made it up. I make it no. I'm well, no, but I mean, somebody else could have coined it before this syndrome. No, no. It, yes, they did. Okay. It's before this. It was essentially the belief is that some if you believe something bad can happen to you, it's more likely to happen to right. you. And it's been shown experimentally. For and instance, we, and we've talked about that kind of thing on the podcast before. We have. I don't think we talked about these couple. I found a couple of experiments. Like one experiment feigned exposure to electromagnetic radiation from a cell phone mm-hmm. on their test subjects. And so the experimenters found that those who thought such exposure would harm them developed terrible headaches. Those who were not predisposed to this belief did not get the headaches. None, of course, were really <laughs> exposed to any ra- regu- uh, radiation at all. It was fake cell phones, essentially, right. that they were using. Adler also cites a study of Chinese Americans that showed how Chinese astrology beliefs could kill. So, for instance, in one no. part of this, People who were born in a birth year that indicated poor lung health were seen as far more likely to get lung disease, and they would die sooner of that of that lung disease than Chinese Americans with the same lung disease, but born in a year without that ast- astrological portent. Okay, so in whatever given year that was, mm-hmm. every person born would be predisposed to bad lung health. That's the, the most ridiculous thing. I'm, I mean, I'm talking about the whole. Yes. No, I know. No. It, it's like the whole year of the rat. Yeah, kind of Chinese thing. astrology. It's just so silly. <laughs> it's astrology astrology is astrology, no matter where it's from. But yeah, in this case, though, you know, if you, so say it was lung cancer, it was the only thing, but it was emphysema, whatever. Yeah. If you got emphysema and you were born in that year, you're more likely to die a bit sooner than the same person with emphysema of a similar age and other, otherwise similar who born wasn't in born in that, year. in that year that mm. had a, this, these negative lung portents. Right. On average, the bad year victims died 10 years earlier than the others with the same lung condition. Wow. And this kind of quickness to death was very strongly positively associated with beliefs in traditional Chinese right. astrology. Huh. Non-Chinese in the same populations so to absolutely no difference whatsoever in when they died from those um, from lung conditions. Interesting. So yeah, it is interesting. These studies indicate that if you believe in something strongly enough, it can hurt you, yeah. not just help you. So that's why it's called the nocebo effect. So it's like a Catholic who believes, or maybe even more increasingly an evangelical Christian who believes that something's bad happened to their teenage kid, they're going to see that as demonic possession, right? That's... Yeah. Based on their, you know, they're ascribing something very terrible based on their beliefs, and of course, obviously, they can find the cure for that. In this case, exorcism, and because of their belief system, that cure is actually does work. Like remember, Roland Doe, yeah. he was eventually cured of his exorcism, and he he bought it because of his beliefs, maybe, or, or sometimes possibly kills the person. Possibly that too. For some Hmong refugees in America in the nineteen eighties, under the, all the stresses we've talked about. And this fear that they're failing their ancestors and they had no remedy for this, it might have meant that an episode of sleep paralysis was enough to kill them. Their heart like flipped into overdrive, became arrhythmic, and they died. Adler wrote, quote, since meaning has biological consequences and meanings vary across cultures, biology can operate differently in different contexts. In other words, biology is local. The same biological processes in different places have different effects on people, unquote. And the Hmong deaths, as I mentioned, I kind of alluded to this. There's other Southeast populations have had this kind of a thing happen. And it usually is the sudden cardiac death. Over 500 Japanese men were killed by what's called the Bokuri death syndrome. I'm not clear on the time period. It's associated with levels of stress. 230 Thai men died in their sleep from 1982 to 1990. In the Philippines, the affliction is called bangungut, as I mentioned, and supposedly it kills 43 of every 100,000 Filipino who, Filipinos who die every year. So it's like, hmm. it's like a significant cause of death in the Philippines. Again, the afflictor in most of these versions is this hag-like demon, this creature who sits on your chest. That was also true in Hawaii. In Hawaii, the what, what would later be called sons killed 81 Filipino workers in Wahoo in 1948, and it was called the dream disease. And again, wow. so I don't know if it's, I think the tithing case, it's been at times associated with people who are like overworked, you know, 
immigrant workers who are really overworked and overstressed. Yeah. And the and and displaced from their network. Like I think some of the time in I wow, I, I could get this wrong, but they were like in Singapore and they're working, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that which ties in with what happened to the Hmong here right. in, in 1980. Yeah. They're displaced, they're stressed, and that that whatever causes that heart condition kills them. And the argument here is again is that culture has a lot to do with the cause of that heart condition. Yeah. So basically, the Hong belief system brought on their deaths, even though technically it may have been manifested in some kind of, you know, cardiac arrhythmia or the like. Beliefs can raise you up, and they can also lay you down. Yeah. I mean, what do you what do you think? What's your shot in the dark for what you think was going on here? The explanation? Do you buy Shelley Adler's explanation? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to buy it. Yeah. You don't think the culture... But yet again, like I said, it's the opposite of the placebo effect, and yeah. I believe wholeheartedly in the placebo effect, so why shouldn't it work in the opposite direction? Mo- the Most researchers, most medical researchers, I should say, think that it's basically just underlying heart conditions and that it just happened to hit a lot of Hmong men in the late 1970s and yeah. 1980s, and you know, enough so it got a name, yeah. but it's, it's really just a genetic condition, and they disregard the cultural I mean, component. has it continued on? It, I mean, the whole um, immigrant refugee thing yeah. kind of goes away, right, after exactly. generations. But since then, there have been plenty of other immigrant refugee yeah. populations displaced and, you know, yeah, but sent you could across argue, the world, but they don't have the same cultural exactly. part of it. It's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. I, I, it has not gone on. It petered out in the late yeah. days. The 80s wore on. It petered out. And it's basically, it still happens occasionally, but it's, it's yeah. very uncommon now. That, to me, does cry out cultural component is somehow contributing to this, I think. There is this, this yeah. belief system that's having an impact on when this bad, when this bad thing happens, when this cardiac event happens. Yeah. It, it, is it tips them over the edge as a contributor, I should say. Is there, I mean, I may have asked you this before, is there any sort of research into any number of people falling victim to this kind of thing that aren't, you know, associated with those populations and, and their <sighs> cultural things? Because there are plenty of reasons why the nocebo effect should and could affect somebody else differently, yeah. you know, in different ways. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't know. Not specific. Not just specific to this sudden nocturnal death. Yeah, I don't think not that I know of. Yeah, because it arose in this specific population. The CDC was mainly investigating yeah. this specific population. Yeah, and trying to figure out a cause of it. I mean, I, my I think is interactive. I think it's probably genetic. Yeah. some kind of genetic cardiac condition, but it interacts. With the yeah. nocebo-based cultural component, and it kills them. Yeah, I, I think I think there is. I think she's at least partly right in that supposition. There's something strange going on here. So yeah. I mean, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. Either way, it's a good thing it isn't still happening at yes. any any rate, at least large enough for it to be noticed and studied. Yeah. It would be 1 million percent sure it would be a major, major story if it did start happening right. again. People would well, notice especially that. now. Yeah. People notice patterns yeah. even when they're not patterns yeah. to be noticed. But and, and uh-huh. yeah, it would be a, a big deal. So now I haven't heard about anything like that at all lately. Yeah. One, so we don't know what caused it. We think there was certainly, obviously it was some kind of a heart condition, but there may have been a cultural component to it. Yeah. One thing, though, is very sure, and that is the story of the Hmong deaths in America was at least indirectly the inspiration for Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. He remembered later that he remembered reading an article in the Los Angeles Times about the the events, about the the Hmong deaths. Specifically, he remembered reading an article about a child refugee from Cambodia who Mm -hmm. escaped the horrific slaughter there and had immigrated to the U.S., and that child, I, I don't know how old the kid was, but he had become terrified to sleep. He feared that he would die while dreaming that he'd be attacked by something in his nightmare. He'd nightmare something that attack something would really cause him real yeah. hard. So those two kind of stories that what was happening to the Mog who were really dying mm-hmm. and the story of this Cambodian boy's fear of being attacked in, in, in his nightmares yeah. is what gave Wes Craven the inspiration for A Nightmare on Elm Street. See, I'll, I'll bet you there's tons of kids across the world who have similar fears and phobias of going to sleep because of oh, something yeah. super scary. 
in yeah. their nightmares. I bet that's true. But I mean, what's I did as a kid. I mean, yeah. I don't remember being afraid I was going to get killed, but... You still are a little bit afraid to sleep, I think, aren't you? No, I love going okay. to sleep. What are you okay. talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Wes Craven told Vulture, quote, when he finally fell... This is the Cam- Cambodian boy. When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought the crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night. Oh, no. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare. Wait, is this quote, true? That's what Wes Craven said. Oh, okay. So I didn't fact check Wes. Maybe, maybe not. But that was his memory yeah. of this article that he read that okay. inspired A Nightmare on Elm Street. That so, he read when he was a kid? No, he read it later when he was an adult. Oh, okay. Not long before writing the screenplay. Yeah, I, I need a citation. So you basically, you take that inspiration, you add a really scary guy with a messed up face and steel claws, yeah. and you got yourself a movie franchise, baby. Yeah. Right it there. is a good story, and it's I mean, I story. have to admit, I've never seen a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but I, I think the underlying story is good, and... It's a phenomenal pre- pre- uh, premise, for yeah. sure. and then there's the whole thing that if you die in your dream you die in real life yeah well that's that's what the premise is yeah is. that's that's the phenomenal yeah of the premise is that yeah no, yeah it's a, johnny depp was one of the stars of it he was he died spoiler alert again and a couple of spoiler alerts here but he was part of the very first one i don't know if you knew that did you know that no you haven't no. seen it so uh-uh. how would you and then i don't know if they had the virgin living and the not virgin dying in that or not if it if it held to that trope oh lord in horror movies but yeah it was a classic. It was a definite trendsetter. And I think they have probably made 21 yeah. or so, or two or four of them. I do know that we have a neighbor who has dressed up as Freddy Krueger for Halloween to scare kids. And he's really good costume. Do you that remember him? sounds terrifying and mean. And, no. Oh, okay. That's the whole point of thing. Oh, I was going to say Thanksgiving. That's the whole point of Halloween. It is. You know, it also is the point of Thanksgiving as well. So, <laughs> So, and dress up and scare the children. Dressed into your witch's costume. <laughs> well, that is the story of the real-life inspiration for Nightmare on Elm Street, the sudden, unexplained nocturnal death syndrome that is, thankfully, as Carrie said, no longer a thing. At least, yes. not much of a thing. Well, thankfully. Yes. Well, thanks, Dean. Thanks for listening, Carrie. Well, and you're welcome. everyone else out there. I can feel like I kind of didn't have a choice in no. the matter. Yeah, but- you did. No, but really you are didn't. welcome anyway. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening, you guys all out there. <laughs> okay. okay, see ya. Who really have a choice. You can yeah. just turn us off if you want to. <laughs> okay. Don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs>